Thank you all so much for joining us. Happy Pro Bono Month. Uh, I'm Jessica Moles. I'm one of the attorneys at KIND. And my name is Alex Prado Carroll. I'm one of the, I'm the managing attorney at KIND's Boston office. So if you could just take just a quick minute, just uh, share what your level of immigration law is, that would be really helpful. And Noah, feel free to stop it whenever and share the results. It looks like we have a few people still trickling in. Great, so it looks like a lot of you have no experience, which is perfect. Uh, a couple of you have some experience, so that's wonderful. I will say the vast majority of our pro bono attorneys have no immigration law experience, so that's um, perfect. That's what we're here for. Um, all right, so we'll just get started. We um, are gonna start with a short video, which we'll start now. I feel free here in the United States. There are many things I love to do, like I love soccer, I love Taekwondo, but I also want to study arts. Nayeli came to the United States because she and her sister and brother had been severely abused by their father. When my mom left, life became very difficult. That's why I escaped. Over the last couple of years, there have been over 100,000 kids who are unaccompanied coming across the border, escaping violence in their home countries and seeking help and protection here in the United States. It took a week for us to cross the border. The first thing I remember, the border patrol picked me up and I was put in an icebox for three days. I felt really cold and really scared, like I didn't know what to do. I thought something bad was gonna happen to me. Imagine being a little kid walking into a courtroom and facing a judge in a big black robe with attorney who's well-trained on the government side that is trying to get you deported and you don't speak the language, you don't understand why you're there. It's just completely unimaginable of how a child could represent themselves in those kinds of circumstances. I don't think I could talk to the court by myself without my lawyers. Even with the interpreter, I couldn't understand what they wanted. Kids in Need of Defense or KIND is a national organization that provides representation to unaccompanied immigrant kids. Things have really changed after KIND started helping me. I got a team of attorneys. They were the ones who support me. They were the ones who prepare everything, and then they face the court for me. It made me feel secure because I knew there was a way I could stay here, and it was this hope that I had that I knew I wasn't going to go back to Honduras. These kids are a tremendous source of inspiration to watch them just flourish when they start getting into school and making friends here. The United States has a reputation of being a country that believes in freedom and justice for all. By not giving kids the due process of even just having their stories heard denies them that very justice that is the main driver for them coming here. Kind's vision is one in which children's rights and well-being are protected as they migrate alone in search of safety. So thank you for being with us today. Um, so um, today we're going to talk about, uh, just touch on the humanitarian crisis in Central America. 
um, and why kids are coming to the U.S. Um, who is an unaccompanied child, um, which is the children uh, who we serve. The A little bit on the immigration court proceedings. All of our clients are currently going through the removal proceeding process. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like, including the two major primary forms of relief um, that our kids are eligible for, asylum and special immigrant juvenile status. And then we'll wrap up talking about what it's like to work with child clients, which as you can imagine is quite different from working um, with corporate clients. So why are kids fleeing to the United States? So there's a variety of reasons. We're going to highlight some of them here. The vast majority of our kids are fleeing violence in some form. Uh, gang violence is almost always mentioned. Many of our kids, particularly the teenage boys, mention uh, being forced to or uh, targeted to join the gangs. Um, Many of them experience um, violence in their home. They may experience domestic abuse, um, gender-based violence. Um, as you can see from the stats here, uh, violence against women in Central America are particularly high rates. Uh, many of our kids also don't have um, an adequate caretaker, um, a parent or has either abused, abandoned, or neglected them. Um, they may not have other caretakers to, um, to care for them. Uh, many kids are also fleeing and uh, um, intense poverty. There's been a lot, the climate change has affected this region in particular, in every region, but there's been a number of uh, significant hurricanes that have resulted in a lot of changes in the climate and, and a lot of um, opportunities have been lost as a result. Um, kids are fleeing trafficking. Many of our kids are also coming to reunite with a parent. They may have um, had a parent who left their home country to try to make a better life for them by coming to the United States and now they're here to follow and to reunite with them. Uh, so this is just a slide to uh, sort of um, to demonstrate the level of violence in Central America. The vast majority of our kids are coming from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And these just shows, this slide shows the rates of homicide per 100,000 people. As you can see here, in El Salvador, it was roughly 80. In the United States, it was four. And so the level of violence is just staggering. So that's where KIND comes in. Um, as Alex um, highlighted earlier, our mission at KIND is to ensure that no child appears in immigration court without high quality legal representation. And that is what um, we are so grateful that you are all here to potentially be one of those attorneys to represent a child in immigration court. Uh, we also have a, um, a branch at KIND that works on policy and laws to protect all unaccompanied children and ensure that they have due process rights. Um, and we also work with um, organizations in home countries um, um, to ensure that they are, that no child uh, is forced to involuntarily migrate. So just a little bit more about KIND. Um, KIND was founded in 2008. Um, and since 2009, uh, we have been referred over 29,000 cases of children um, seeking legal uh, services. Um, we are very fortunate. We've partnered with over 722 law firms, corporations, law schools, bar associations, and we really hope um, that after this training that you'll be inclined to uh, join and become one of our partners um, and share in the representation of unaccompanied children. Um, in 2015, uh, our organization um, started uh, providing social services to children as well. And we have assisted over 1,300 clients um, with social services support. And that was just in 2021 alone. Um, and as, as we'll talk about, you know, the, the success rate of a child who has an attorney, you know, is, is 100 times more likely to be successful in their case if they do have an attorney. And at KIND, we have been very lucky again in that 99% um, of the children who we represented and were successful um, in their immigration proceedings. So again, as, as Jessica touched upon and I, and I added, the um, we have our social services component. We have a team of social services staff members who ensure the safety and well-being of all of our clients, recognizing um, that if their social services needs are not met, um, it is a challenge um, for children to be focused on their immigration case. Um, as Jess mentioned, we have a policy and advocacy team um, based in uh, Washington, D.C., but also around the country. We work locally um, with other organizations and coalitions to um, promote 
local um, policies that promote um, the success of unaccompanied children as they're on the move. Our international programs is one of our fastest growing programs. We have offices in Mexico, Central America, and now in Europe as well. And our legal services, which is really at the work that we do in our Boston office, um, we provide representation to children in removal proceedings. We now have 15 uh, field offices across the country. Um, and those offices include our office in Boston, which is expanding into Providence, Rhode Island. Um, we have an office in Orlando that now has a satellite office in Jacksonville as well. Um, and we have um, our border team um, that serves children who are uh, traveling through Mexico and into the United States. And so very briefly about our office in Boston. So we have uh, a pro bono program. So attorneys who train and mentor pro bono attorneys, like hopefully you, to take a, a kind case. We also have a couple of attorneys who provide direct representation to their own clients. Uh, we also, as Alex mentioned, we also have a social services team to provide social services support to our pro bono attorneys and other attorneys in our office. Um, and we've also recently uh, expanded to detained work. So um, we'll talk about a little bit later, many of the kids on their journey will end up at a shelter and we um, at KIND uh, are, provide, are servicing uh, shelters in Connecticut and Massachusetts and providing legal screenings and Know Your Rights presentations to those kids. Um, as Alex mentioned, we have expanded to Rhode Island very recently in servicing kids in Providence. So if you or anyone you know are barred in Rhode Island, uh, let us know if you are interested in taking a case there. Um, and then also, as Alex also mentioned, uh, we do um, partner with organizations and coalitions to do local advocacy here in the Boston area. So who is an, an unaccompanied child? Our, um, we are only able to represent children who entered unaccompanied and the term unaccompanied child is a legal designation and one that is assigned to children once they cross the border into the United States. So as you may know, kids may come into the border either or into the United States either by presenting themselves at a port of entry um, without having lawful status or they could come across the border and be apprehended by immigration enforcement. At that point, um, they will be designated as an unaccompanied child if they are, if they have no lawful immigration status, if they're under the age of 18 and they're not traveling with a parent or a legal guardian um, who is available to provide care and physical custody when they enter. Um, so the legal term is actually unaccompanied alien child. We don't, we don't call our children aliens because that is um, offensive. Um, so we, we refer to unaccompanied children. But again, that is a legal designation that attaches once a child enters the United States. They will carry that designation throughout the, the duration of their case, which will ensure that they have certain protections as they present their case to the immigration court. How do kids get to the US? Um, this is a question that we get oftentimes, especially because we work with such young children who are coming by themselves. Um, as you'll see from these images, um, you see a young woman on the top of a train. That is a, a train called La Bestia. It's an infamous train, really. It's a freight train that travels through Mexico. So a lot of the young people traveling um, from Central America to the southern border of the United States will hop on this freight train. Um, it's not a passenger train. It's extremely dangerous. Children have been known to lose their lives, their limbs. Um, it's very dangerous. Sometimes children are sexually assaulted. Um, so it's certainly not not a, not a good way to travel, um, but it is what a lot of children have to resort to in order to make it to the southern border of the U.S. Um, you can see images of individuals walking through the desert. Um, we've heard from countless clients um, the journeys that they have to go through walking for hours, days at a time um, without food, without water. Um, it, it is truly a harrowing journey. Um, you might uh, recall most recently there was an accident in, in San Antonio, Texas, where a tractor trailer was found with uh, dozens of migrants um, who were being transported um, in a tractor trailer without air, without water, um, and they unfortunately suffocated. Um, and a lot of families do resort um, to this method of transportation to get to the U.S. So again, this is not, this is not, um, not anything that anybody does, um, but for the very, very dire circumstances that they're leaving their home country.
So what happens when a child arrives in the United States? Um, as I mentioned, the child will cross into the United States either by crossing the border or um, by presenting themselves at a port of entry. And at either point, they will be apprehended by Customs and Border Protection if they don't have lawful um, status to enter the United States. When we talk about kids in cages, that is really what we're talking about. Unfortunately, that is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that we've seen only from the last administration, but it's an occurrence that continues to happen when children enter, children and adults enter the United States. They um, are they go through a border facility, um, which again, when we talk about kids in cages and see those images, that is what we're talking about. Now, the TVPRA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, ensures that children don't have to spend more than 72 hours in that border facility. So at this point, once a child is identified as an unaccompanied child, they will be removed from the border facility and taken to an ORR shelter. That ORR is the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and they are charged with um, ensuring the children are in a safe location um, while their case is analyzed and processed. Once they're at the shelter, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement will issue an NTA, that is a notice to appear. The TVPRA also ensures that unaccompanied children have the right to appear before an immigration judge and request permission to remain in the United States. Once that NTA, that notice to appear, is properly filed with the immigration court, it will commence removal proceedings. So that is a benefit that is afforded to unaccompanied children. They have a right to see an immigration judge as opposed to adults when they're apprehended at the border or if they present themselves at a port of entry without lawful documentation, they um, don't necessarily have a right to see an immigration judge. They could be expeditedly expelled from the country um, unless they go through a credible fear process and establish prima facie eligibility for asylum, in which case they will then be allowed to see an immigration judge. Unaccompanied children, however, have the opportunity to um, be placed in removal proceedings. So once a child is at the shelter, um, which again, I've heard described in the news as like summer camps, I would not describe these facilities as summer camps, but they are, um, they are proper facilities where children are, you know, have access to uh, a place to sleep, water, education, um, and they're working with shelter staff that will locate and screen possible sponsors, so individuals whom the child can be released to um, for the duration of their removal proceedings, right? They're not going to remain in these facilities. We do consider children who are in OR facilities to be detained. Um, they're not going to remain in these facilities if they have a place. They're going to be in the least restrictive setting. So if they have a family member who can sponsor them, typically a parent, um, an older sibling, another relative, they will be released to that um, individual. So the shelter works with the child to identify that possible sponsor. Um, while they're at the shelter, there is a legal service provider that will provide a Know Your Rights presentation and will work with the children there to make sure that they understand why they're there and the legal process they're going to embark on, what their rights, what their responsibilities are um, at the shelter and once they're released. Um, and they will also conduct a legal screening to identify the forms of relief that the children um, might be eligible for. So once the shelter conducts their um, uh, screening of the proposed sponsor, the child will be released to live with that sponsor. And then their case um, will be initiated in the, um, in the court where that child is going to reside. Um, so at that point, once the child is released um, from the shelter, kind is contacted either by the legal service provider um, at that shelter who knows that the child is going to be released to Boston, to the Boston area, so our office will get a referral. Or alternatively, once that child is released, um, they will contact our office seeking um, legal representation. And then, once a child is in their ultimate destination, um, the removal proceedings will be commenced in the jurisdiction where they reside. So in Boston, and actually in all of New England, um, children have to appear before the Boston Immigration Court.
So I know I know that was a lot, and I don't know if we said it at the beginning, but please feel free um, to put questions in the chat, and we'll address them um, as they come up. So as Alex mentioned, uh, this is a notice to appear. Uh, this is the document that the children will receive and that will eventually uh, commence removal proceedings. So as you can see, it's, it's a document that says, you know, you are uh, you are not a citizen of the United States. You're a native of whatever country you're, they're coming from. You were uh, you arrived in this place in the United States, usually someplace in Texas or something like that, and and um, you are not admitted or paroled. And so it's this document that will respond to an immigration court and say that okay, that may all be true, but we have a defense to removal and we're going to pursue asylum or special immigrant juvenile status, or I have some other basis for legal relief. Um, and we'll talk about these um, types of relief um, now. So we're start with asylum. And before I get into the asylum, I'm going to plug um, one of our trainings. If you do end up taking a kind case, um, we have a full training on asylum. We'll get into the case law um, and, the, and the nuances of uh, asylum law. Um, but just to give you a taste, um, in order for an individual to be eligible for asylum, they have to prove, and the, bar, the burden falls on them, to demonstrate that they are, they meet the definition of a refugee. Now, just to contrast it, because we hear a lot in the news about refugees, the refugee crisis, we consider our clients to be refugees, of course, they are displaced, they are coming um, for various reasons. Um, the refugee designation is actually some, something that happens outside the United States, and individuals who enter the country as refugees do so with that designation. It is a lawful status um, that eventually leads them to um, apply for a lawful permanent residence. Now, the clients that we represent, the children, most of the children that are coming from Central America, there is no mechanism for them to be to apply for refugee status. Um, thankfully, this administration has like um, uh, renewed the CAM, the Central American Minors Program, which is like a refugee program that, that applies to a very limited number of children. Unfortunately, the vast majority of our clients do not qualify. Um, and the only way that they can apply for asylum is by physically being in the United States. So we just want to stress that, that all of the children that are going through this process are going through a lawful legal process. And the only way they can do that is by physically being in the United States. So in order to meet the refugee, the definition of a refugee, an individual has to be outside their country of nationality and be unable or unwilling to return to and is unable or unwilling to avail themselves of the protections of that home country um, because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or their political opinion. So just to break up that definition a little bit, the elements that we have to prove is that there was persecution, so a harm, some sort of past harm, or perhaps a well-founded fear of future harm. Um, on account of, right, the nexus element, there has to be like one central reason for that harm has to be on account of one of the protected grounds. Now, as you might imagine, it's hard enough for an individual to be able to properly articulate the reasons why they're being persecuted. An individual who is harming another will very rarely make it clear that they are uh, harming the person on account of their closely held political opinion. Um, if it's hard enough for an adult to be able to articulate that is even harder for a young child. So that is really where attorneys come in. Um, it is really up to us to then, you know, take the story that the client is, is telling us and then be able to fit it into the definition of asylum. In terms of filing, just to give you a sense of what the work would be if you were to take on a case, um, children will have to, um, all applicants for asylum have to submit an I-589 application. It's, you know, a few pages long. It's not super complicated. You'll enter your appearance using a Form G-28 and then demonstrate that the child um, entered as an unaccompanied child. There is a document that the children receive once they leave the shelter. Um, and then once that is filed um, before uh, USCIS, the asylum office, the child will get a biometrics appointment notice that they have to attend to. 
Um, the child's case will be then um, scheduled for an interview at the asylum office, the timing of which is a little uncertain at the moment. Um, but once that interview is scheduled, um, the attorney will submit a brief, a full comprehensive affidavit um, recounting the child's story um, and any supporting documentation, country conditions documentation um, to supplement the case. Um, and then that's the timing is really what's a little bit off right now. Um, the asylum office schedules cases on a last in first out basis. So as you might imagine, there is a very long um, backlog. Um, and so it's really unclear when an immigration asylum interview will be scheduled. As I mentioned earlier, the TVPRA does provide certain procedural protections for children. So um, if a child has been designated an unaccompanied child, they have that benefit um, of not being subject to the one-year filing deadline. So individuals applying for asylum must submit that I-589 application, either before the court or before the asylum office, uh, within one year of entry. Um, the TVPRA recognizes that children may sometimes take a little bit longer um, to be able to properly articulate their case, and therefore children who are designated unaccompanied are exempt from that one-year filing deadline. The other benefit um, to unaccompanied children is that a child, even if they are in removal proceedings before the immigration court, they have the opportunity to submit their asylum application directly with the asylum office um, as opposed to before the court. Um, asylum office is uh, meant to be um, less intimidating setting. It is uh, not is meant to be a non-adversarial proceeding. Um, there is no, you know, there's not a judge, there's not a trial attorney uh, from the government cross-examining the child, but it's in an office. Um, the child is able to tell their story and answer questions to the asylum officer. And with the added benefit that if the case is not successful at the asylum office, it will then be referred to the immigration court for a de novo review by the immigration judge. Um, so it is, it is, a, it is a nice benefit um, afforded to children. Again, recognizing that they don't, um, they might need a little bit longer to be able to tell their story um, and to do so in a in a less um, adversarial setting. Um, the unaccompanied uh, child designation technically ends once that child turns eighteen or once they are reunited with a parent or a legal guardian. Thankfully, um, back in 2013, um, there was some procedural um, changes and it was established that once a child was designated an unaccompanied child, they would retain that designation throughout the duration of their case, regardless of whether they turned 18, even if they were reuniting with a parent. In 2019, there was another memo that was issued, um, which essentially indicated that once that child turned 18 um, or was reunited with that parent, the uh, unaccompanied child designation would end um, and the child would be subject to the same rules as, as an adult coming into the United States. Um, thankfully, that decision um, or that memo is currently stayed um, due to a class action, JOP uh, versus DHS, um, that KIND um, is actively involved in, thanks to the help of one of our wonderful pro bono attorneys. And um, so that decision is stayed, meaning that the existing memo, the 2013 memo, is what stands. And again, once a child is designated an unaccompanied child, they can uh, retain the protections um, that is afforded to unaccompanied children, regardless of that status may be changing. There is another case that we just want to point out to. There's a matter of MACO that also indicates that once a child turns 18, the immigration judge can take jurisdiction over that case. Again, I'm not going to get into the specifics of asylum law. We do have a very comprehensive training, um, but just to give you a sense of what the case would entail. Any questions, feel free to put them in the Q&A. Um, we'll just try to keep moving along then. Uh, so the other form of relief that many of our kids are eligible for is called Special Immigrant Juvenile Status, or SIG. And this is a special status for kids who have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both of their parents. And it's in their best interest to remain in the United States and not return to their home country. So although it's called Special Immigrant Juvenile Status, it's actually not a status in and of itself like asylum or like asylee is. Um, and so, but it does give them the ability to apply for a green card 
and have lawful status. So the criteria uh, for SIG, um, they have to be under 21 when they apply. They have to be unmarried until they get their SIG approval. And if you forget that, just tell your client not to get married until they run it by you. <laughs> they have to be dependent on a juvenile court or placed into the custody of an individual or entity. And we'll talk about what that means. And then reunification with one or both parents cannot be viable based on abuse, abandonment, neglect, or some other similar basis under state law. And in Massachusetts, some other similar basis would be considered uh, the death of a parent. Uh, and the key to this uh, criteria is that um, it's not viable. So it's not capable of being successful. So it's not that it's not possible to reunite with a, an abusive parent. It's just not gonna be a successful relationship. So that's the, the key to that criteria. And then finally, it's not in their best interest to remain, uh, to return to their home country. So these are the sort of, typical phases of a SIDGE case. So the first phase actually takes place in typically in probate and family court in Massachusetts. Um, and the reason for that is that when the legislators were coming up with the, stat the SIDGE statutes, they decided that the people who should be making this decision about abuse, abandonment, neglect, best interest of a child are the, the people who deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis. And those are the probate and family court uh, judges. It's also possible to take place in juvenile um, court, just doesn't happen as often um, for our cases. Um, but you can't just go into probate and family court and say, I want a finding that I've been, I was abused by my parents. Instead, you need a mechanism into probate and family court. Um, and that mechanism is typically, uh, could be a guardianship case, a custody case uh, for kids who are over 18, that might be a special statute called 39M. And then for some, kind, some kids, we do have um, end up going to juvenile court. So it could be a care and protection case or a delinquency case. But again, that tends to not be um, our typical case. So if any of you are family law attorneys and are very familiar with guardianship cases or any of these other ones, um, it's very similar to one of those cases. So um, that would, would benefit you certainly. Uh, so to get into family court, sort of the logistics of getting into family court, you'd be filing you know, a guardianship case or a custody case or whatever it is, and then adding an additional motion, a request for these special findings to show that you've been abused, abandoned, neglect, et cetera, and it's your best interest to remain here. Uh, you'll put all that together, you'll file it in respective probate and family court, and then you'll serve the parent or parents, um, and you'll do that for you know the normal due process reasons you do it for any other case uh, and we like to say that service um, is a spectrum you know sometimes you have con your the client has contact with both parents they're both at home they're not um, they may have not been um, they either may have abused abandoned or neglected the child but they will go to the notary and sign your consent form or on the other end, you know, the child hasn't ever had contact with the parent. They abandoned them at birth and you don't know where they live. And so you need to publish in a newspaper. Um, to be honest, in some ways that can be the, the easiest scenario uh, because you're dealing directly with the newspaper. Uh, but whatever the, the, wherever you fall in the spectrum, your kind mentor will walk you through the whole process so that you'll file, be ready for your hearing and probing in family court. And typically that hearing um, is not a very long hearing. It's 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, for those of you who do practice in probing in family court, maybe you'll know that many of the judges are just happy that there is someone there to represent the child or represent the family. Uh, and so and we'll you know walk you through that, that whole process, do a training on it. But that's just to say that if you don't like being in court like me, um, please don't let that um, prevent you from taking a case because we'll uh, you know we will walk you through the whole process and it is um, it's not a full evidentiary hearing so um, it's it's actually not too bad uh, and it really is although, although I mentioned there are kids who can get these special findings over 18 we still say it's sort of generally best practice if you can file and get your hearing over with and get the order before they turn 18. So going back to that three phases of a, a SIDGE case. So you filed, you had your hearing, assuming everything goes well. The end of that first phase, you'll leave the court with an order of special findings to say your you know, child meets these 
criteria for, for SIDGE. Um, and I don't want to minimize the value of that underlying form of relief. You know, I sort of refer to it um, as a mechanism into family court, but I don't want to um, undervalue uh, the importance of, you know, giving a uh, guardianship order um, or custody order to a caretaker of this child to, you know, have legal documentation to say that they can make uh, decisions about medical care or education or the like. So um, you, you'll, you'll leave with two wins, um, you know, one for underlying form of relief uh, of request and then also this order of special findings. Um, but you'll leave that first phase and then you'll go to phase two and you'll fill out some immigration paperwork, you know, it takes roughly like two hours. You'll stick that order of special findings in. You'll send it off to USCIS, the immigration agency. And then assuming everything looks good, in roughly six months, um, and that time change time frame changes. Uh, but if everything looks good, you'll just get an or um, an approval notice in the mail saying that your client has special immigrant juvenile status. And then the most recent development um, that's just happened in the last six months or so is that in addition to that order of, um, of the approval notice that you have SIGE, you might also get uh, an approval of deferred action. And the nice thing about this, um, the most tangible benefit of deferred action is that it allows them to get a work card. So in addition to while they're sort of waiting for their case to pan out, it's at this stage that they might be able to get a work card uh, and um, you know, that leads to them being able to get a driver's license and you know, better work opportunities and the like. Um, so then assuming um, all of that goes well, then they'll move on to phase three, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, you can't um, just stay in phase two and just have special immigrant juvenile status forever. Uh, you need to adjust your status and apply to get your green card. So you'll be filing an I-45 application. And sort of depending on um, the state of your case and how your client entered, you'll either put together some more um, paperwork and file that with USCIS, the immigration agency, or you'll submit it to the immigration court and have a, a short hearing. Um, We'll walk you through whatever scenario that is. And again, if you don't like being in court, I again emphasize don't let that be, um, don't let that deter you. Uh, it's, you know, we have, you know, most of the time this will mean that your case is a straightforward hearing. We have, um, particularly if you end up in before this judge who tends to have many of our kids, you know, she'll welcome your client to the United States and tell them to dream big dreams. And it's just a wonderful experience overall. So, um, and I will just say a sort of a note about timing of all of these things. So the first phase, um, it's actually probably the most amount of work. I would say that probably 80% of your case is sort of front loaded and it's in that first phase. And it's at this phase that you really can control the timing for the most part. Um, you know, you might still be waiting for your immigration or um, your probate and family court you know, court to schedule for you for a hearing or give you some paperwork and the like, but for the most part, you can sort of move the case along um, and for in phase one. Phase two, you're just mailing it off. And so you're just waiting, not a lot of time, not, not a lot of waiting, uh, or, or rather, you're not a lot of control over timing. And then it's phase three, that that's where you're sort of also waiting um, and don't really have a lot of control over timing. And the reason for that is there's a certain number of visas that are, are available to kids from each from from people from different countries, depending on what um, how you're getting your green card. And so for kids from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, which is where most of our kids are coming from, from there's a backlog and there's only a certain number of visas available to them. And so given that so many of our kids are applying for these uh, for green cards in this particular category based on SIG, uh, there is a wait. So it, it, every month a, a bulletin comes out and says we're processing them at this date um, and we just have to wait and we have no control over that. But it's just to say that it might take a couple of years to get your place in line. And the way you get at your place in line is based on when you file your application for phase two. So that's again, sort of to emphasize, move along on phase one as much as you can, get your kids application in, and then you're just sort of waiting for your place in line um, at that point. So that's sort of the, the three phases of a SIGE case. Um, and yeah, I will move along. Um, so since most of our kids are eligible for both asylum and SIG, we thought it might be helpful to just sort of highlight a few of the differences between the two of them. 
Yeah, so the first is um, the presentation of the story. Um, so for an asylum case, it is quite, in terms of gathering the information from your client, it's very involved. You do need to present um, a very, very comprehensive affidavit. Um, you'll, you'll meet with your client multiple times, put together, you know, a very, very long affidavit, you know, maybe 10 pages um, of, of a story of what happened to them, everything that they went through. It's very, very, very detailed. Um, and then once they go into that asylum interview, um, even if they're not going before the judge, they will be asked very, very pointed questions. The asylum officer is going to like scrutinize that application, scrutinize the application that was submitted, what was submitted with the supplementary filing and make sure there are no inconsistencies. Um, so in terms of trauma, if a child, you know, already went through um, pretty traumatic events back home and it might be too traumatic or it would be re-traumatizing for that child to have to recount that story multiple times, you know, that is something to keep in mind in terms of the way that the story itself is presented. And by contrast, for a SIDGE case, you will be providing an affidavit typically to the court or the probate and family court, but that affidavit, while it can be detailed, tends to be much shorter, two or three pages. It's really limited to abuse, abandonment, neglect of the parents, and it doesn't need to be quite as detailed as an asylum application uh, or an affidavit. And when you present the story, typically it's not the probate and family court judges aren't um, scrutinizing your uh, testimony or having you tell your client testify. And even at the very end, if you had a hearing in immigration court, they're typically not going into those types of details. In terms of living and working in the United States, asylum in and of itself is status. An individual can remain um, with asylee status indefinitely. Um, it allows them to work in the United States. It allows them to live in the United States. Um, uh, and whereas I said it before with SIG, they can't just stay with just SIG, they have to then move to the third stage and adjust their status and eventually get their green card. But they can now at that second stage, uh, potentially get their work card. In terms of citizenship, asylum is a pathway to citizenship. And while it is a status in and of itself, once an individual has uh, been granted asylee status, they're eligible to apply for a green card within one year. Um, and then after having their green card for that one year, they actually become eligible for citizenship within four years. Um, so typically speaking, you can apply for citizenship if you've had your green card for five years, but if you've obtained your green card through asylum, they credit that one year in asylee status. Um, so you are able to apply for citizenship. A little and, same with, and similarly for SIG, you are also able putting your client on a path to citizenship, but you won't get credit for any of the time that you were a SIG, so you would just have to wait the, the typical five years. Um, in terms of the timing, um, that as I just said, it, it'll take one year. Once the individual is in uh, asylee status, and within one year, they become eligible to apply for that green card. And then with SIG, um, as I mentioned earlier, that the timing is just uncertain as to when your um, place in line um, comes up so that you can apply for your green card. In terms of sponsoring family, an individual um, can either include a spouse or a child in their asylum application if they're in the United States. If their spouse or child is outside the United States, once they get asylee status, they can then petition um, for that spouse or child to also be given asylee status by virtue of their relationship. Um, so long as that relationship existed at the time that the application was adjudicated. Um, once they um, become green card holders, they can petition um, spouses, they can petition children. Um, and yeah, and then once they become U.S. citizens, a uh, U.S. citizen can also petition um, adult children, married children, as well as parents. Um, and one of the, um, the biggest contrasts for SIG applicants, they can never provide an immigration benefit to either of their parents. So even if there's like a good parent and a bad parent, um, you can't, they can't provide uh, an immigration benefit to either of them. It's just the way that the statute is drafted. 
Great. Um, and then in terms of traveling to country of origin, that's something, you know, it's an important consideration for clients as they're applying for these forms of relief, because an individual with SILE status, once they get granted SILE status, they cannot travel back to home country, given that they've told the U.S. government that they cannot return home, that they don't have the protection of their home country. Um, even once they get that green card, um, traveling to home country can be, you know, problematic in that they could lose that green card on their return home if they, on the return to the United States, um, if they went back to home country. And then there's kind of two schools of thought, whether once the individual becomes a US citizen, they can travel back to home country because now they can avail themselves of the protection of the US government if they travel abroad. Um, but again, it can be, um, it, it would be, you know, something to really uh, think about because again, you've indicated you can't go back um, or your life would be in danger. So um, that is a decision that children will have to make at that point, um, which which path they want to pursue. And that's another big difference between SIG and asylum is that when you, if you get your green card, if your client gets their green card through SIG, they can return to their home country. And although we started this presentation talking about how dangerous um, these countries can be, many of them still have, you know, um, siblings or grandparents or even a parent that they do have a good relationship with that they would like to see. And so that is often a um, very important factor for them and, and often comes up very early on is whether they can go back to the, ever go back to their home country. So we are going to um, do a hypothetical. We're going to launch a poll once we sort of run through the scenario for Sophia. So she is 16 from Guatemala. She, her father died when she was a baby. Uh, at five, Sophia's mother moved away to another town, started another family. She spoke to her mother twice, but and, or she's seen her mother twice, uh, and sometimes they speak on the phone. Uh, Sophia lived with her grandparents. Six months ago, she started getting harassed by an older boy who lived in her town. Every time she went to school, he would follow her. In one terrifying incident, the boy and a group of his friends attacked Sophia. Fearing for her safety, she fled to the United States, and now she's living with her aunt in Lynn. So um, if we could launch the second poll, we're going to ask what forms of relief or form uh, of relief do you think Sophia might be eligible for? Uh, it's multiple choice, so um, do whatever you think she might be eligible for. And we'll give you a couple seconds. Great. So uh, it looks like we have um, a fair amount of you that said SIG based on father's death. Yes. So in Massachusetts, uh, death is considered another basis for SIG. So that will be a basis for SIG. Um, mother's abandonment, I agree, and her mother's neglect. Uh, sometimes people, people throw in abuse as well, uh, maybe emotional abuse, so that's always a potential possibility, but definitely I think her strongest forms of um, or bases for SIDGE would be her father's death, her mom's abandonment, and neglect, so perfect. Um, Alex, do you want to talk a little bit? Um, oh, actually, uh, we did not have a silent on here, but that was probably my fault. Does anybody, um, Alex, would you think that this, that Sophia might be eligible for asylum? Um, I think that I would need a little bit more information. It does sound um, like she was attacked, but we would need to understand the reasons why um, that happened in order to determine her asylum eligibility. So definitely need a little bit more information, but my inkling is yes. Thank you, Alex. So um, we're not gonna get into these forms of relief too much just because I am mindful of the time. 
but um, there are other forms of relief that our children are oftentimes eligible for. That includes T visas for individuals who have been the victims of sex or labor trafficking. Um, so that is um, sex or labor induced by force, fraud, or coercion. Um, they also have to have been physically in, present in the United States due to that trafficking. So they must have been brought here for that purpose. Um, U visas are for victims of qualifying crimes. They have to demonstrate that they have suffered um, substantial physical or mental abuse as a direct result of that criminal activity and also um, have cooperated with law enforcement in the prosecution of that criminal activity. Um, and finally, VAWA, which is violence against women. It is not only for women, but it is for uh, victims of abuse at the hands of a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident parent or step parent. So many of our children aren't eligible given the need for the qualifying relationship, but it does happen from time to time that a parent might have lawful status or a step parent might have lawful status um, and there has been abuse. Um, the child would be eligible for VAWA. And then there are other forms of family-based relief, which again, given the fact that many of our clients, their parents do not have lawful immigration status, they're not eligible um, for that benefit. Um, but it is important to keep in mind. Great. So we wanted to sort of wrap up um, with talking a little bit about working with unaccompanied children. As Alex highlighted in the beginning, you know, working with children um, is a lot different than working with your typical adult or corporate clients. Uh, you know, this we in this slide we've just highlighted three um, aspects of their identities. They're multifaceted, so these are just three that we're highlighting: the fact that they're immigrants, they're children, and they're also many of them are trauma survivors, whether they identify as such or not. Uh, you know. To say the least, they are immigrants. Many of their families, and they have been released to a caretaker or family member who's also an immigrant. Many of those family members are also undocumented. So keeping in mind just that they may have may not have work cards. They may have um, strict or uh, not very flexible work schedules. So to the extent that you can plan, you know, keep that in mind when you're planning meetings. Uh, keep that in mind in terms of how, you know their accessibility to Boston and your offices. Uh, you know, we do have a whole training on working with unaccompanied children as well. It also touches on you know, some of the cultural differences um, that, you know, and tips on ways to connect with your client and build the trust that you think are, is, is necessary for um, the duration and the success of your case. Uh, you know, most of our kids, and we'll talk about this in a minute, um, do not speak English, um, at least in the beginning of their cases. The vast majority speak Spanish, uh, some uh, speak Portuguese, uh, but don't let that um, also stop you as I do not speak Spanish either. Um, then also keep in mind that our kids, these are kids, the average age of our kids is about 15. We did just get a referral for a one year old, which is heartbreaking. Um, but you know, they, if you remember being a teenager or you have children or teenagers of your own, you know, they have short attention spans, you're going to have to repeat things many times. And that's sort of consistent also with the effects of trauma. You know, many of our kids, whether they have been diagnosed with PTSD or some kind of trauma, um, have experienced abuse, abandonment, neglect, had this harrowing journey that Alex talked about earlier, so that they've experienced trauma in some form. And unfortunately, most are unable to get mental health services, um, even when they're in the United States. So a layer that's all layered on just on, on top of one another, just to say that, um, you know, the, one of the things that you can bring to your kind cases um, and to your clients is patience and understanding and open-mindedness. Um, and we're happy to walk you through um, any challenges that you might have or experience along the way. So um, at KIND, we do um, kind of take a holistic approach to the representation of children. Um, we believe that our pro bono attorneys are part of the child's caregiving system. So as the attorneys, we are responsible for the child's legal case. Um, hopefully the child does have a caregiver um, and is receiving home and familial support. Um, they're going to school, hopefully, and they have access to educational resources. Um, and they are in some, you know, they have some contact with social services, be it through their um, doctor's office or they're receiving educational support. Um, we do have our social services providers here um, in the office as well. Um, so again, this caregiving system uh, accepts the concept that all aspects of the child's life really um, 
directly impact that attorney-client relationship and ultimately the legal relief. So, you know, if a child is worried about food insecurity or housing insecurity, again, they really can't focus on that immigration case. Um, so it is important that we work together with all of these other um, uh, aspects within the child's life. Going to very, very quickly just touch up on our social services programming. As I mentioned, since 2015, um, our social services team has been expanding and growing. Um, the social services uh, coordinator, um, you know, can work directly with clients. They receive um, a social services referral from any of the attorneys. Um, and then provide individual support to that client. Um, they also engage in therapeutic programming. We'll have um, art programs or music therapy um, that might be available to our clients um, periodically. Um, the social services team also provides training and technical assistance, um, not just to all of us in the office who've learned so much um, just about the effects of trauma, as Jessica just mentioned, um, but also, you know, to the community to, you know, help uh, others in the community understand the process that in, um, unaccompanied children go through um, and how that affects their interactions with the various other systems in their life. Um, and finally, outreach and partnership development. We're very fortunate to have the experience of our very, very experienced social services coordinator in our office who has numerous partnerships um, in the greater Boston area and is able to provide warm referrals to our clients um, as needed. Going to very quickly touch on this um, other hypo, um, which is, you know, typical kind client. Um, Maria is 16 years old. She's from El Salvador. Um, she was abandoned by her father uh, when she was born. Her mom left El Salvador when Maria was only two years old, and she grew up with her aunt, who basically let her do whatever she wanted. Um, Maria fled uh, El Salvador and came to the U.S. Um, about a year ago after she witnessed uh, her best friend being murdered by gangs. She now lives with her mother. She's been reunited with her mother in Chelsea, um, and she goes to Chelsea High School. Um, she hasn't lived with her mom in over 13 years, and she is used to being on her own, taking care of herself. Um, so you're meeting with Maria and her mom, and Maria uh, steps out of the room, and Maria's mother tells you that she's concerned because Maria's boyfriend is 25 years old, and her mom does not know if Maria is on birth control. So we have another poll. Final poll. Do you think it's appropriate to talk to Maria about birth control? We'll give it another second. Okay, so the majority of you did think that it was appropriate. Thank you. Um, others thought that it was outside the scope of their representation. Others thought that, nope, she should be talking to her mother about this or her doctor about this. Um, and, and there was uh, some who thought that it would violate their ethical duty. Um, so just, uh, just to share here, I know that for many of us, um, talking about these issues might feel foreign or uncomfortable, um, but it is a very common scenario um, that our clients face. Um, and just remember that um, when we are representing unaccompanied children, again, they don't come with just the legal case. It really, there is so much more going on in their lives and you might be the only person in their life available um, just to talk to them about their options, about their opportunity here in the United States. You know, it's, it's not that you're telling them what to do or not to do, but really just guiding them and letting them know um, that they might have opportunities um, in this country. So, um, you know, we, we invite all of you um, to, 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 you know, kind of work with us and, and go through these issues. And again, if it does come up to reach out to your kind mentor, we can get our social services coordinator involved um, and help you navigate um, these issues. So um, we just threw a lot of information at you, um, but that is your official training for KIND. So if um, 
that hasn't overwhelmed you um, and you're still interested in potentially volunteering with KIND, uh, the best thing we, you could do is take a, a pro bono case with us. Um, you, we also always have a need for uh, interpreters, so either for written translations or for interpreting at meetings. If you speak Spanish or Portuguese or any other language, just reach out to us. Um, if you are interested, um, our contact information is at the end, you just Google us. Um, but the next steps would be just doing a very basic um, criminal background check for on our end, and then a conflicts check on your end of whatever way that you or your firm handles that. Uh, and then we would send you the initial materials to get started on your case. And you would have a kickoff call with your kind mentor. And then you would be assigned a kind mentor for the duration of your case. So we won't just like drop it off at the end. Um, so we, we did get an earlier question in the chat, um, which I answered for a student um, who is a graduate of an LLM program. They are able to take on a case if they are licensed. Um, um, to, to practice law in, in any state. We'd have to work with you um, to figure out if you're not licensed in Massachusetts specifically um, for help with the state court piece for a SIG case. Um, but if you're licensed in any state, you can take on representation in immigration court, you know, asylum, the whole immigration portion of the case. If you're not yet licensed, then, you know, we'd work with you um, to maybe try to identify a partner or somebody who can um, enter an appearance on behalf of the client, but it was a good question and we do welcome all volunteers. So please don't hesitate to reach out if you do want to get involved. Great. And in the interest of time, um, I'll just very briefly um, say that the way that we partner with pro bono attorneys, you know, we will mentor you through the duration of the case, provide trainings, help you in whatever way that you want, provide samples, provide um, review drafts, etc. But we don't co-counsel. So this will be your case. You will be the one meeting with your client, counseling on their options, the pros and cons of SIG versus asylum, and then representing them and standing with them in court, in whatever uh, court or forum that they end up in. And and then hopefully if everything goes well and you will explain to them the benefits of being an asylee or a lawful permanent resident. And you'll all get the slides so you'll be able to see this uh, breakdown as well. In terms of our ongoing resources, um, as I mentioned, we have a whole host of trainings available to you. Um, we go into like every element of SIG, every aspect of that case, the state court piece, um, everything to do with filing uh, before USCIS, filing for their uh, for the green card, asylum, same thing, comprehensive trainings. We go into details um, about you know the most recent case law, um, all sorts of trainings and a library that will be available to you um, once you take on representation of a client client. Um, we also have a series of samples, guidance, memos, checklists, really anything um, that you can imagine just to help guide you through the case from start to finish. You'll be assigned um, a dedicated mentor who'll be able to answer questions, review documents. Um, and for those of you who don't speak Spanish, we have a robust list of volunteer interpreters um, who are very generous um, and able to assist um, to provide that translation. And similarly, if you just know somebody who speaks that language, they just have to be fluent um, in whatever language it is. So bring your own if you like. Uh, we just wanted to wrap up with just this slide here. I won't repeat it. Um, you can see that here, but uh, just to emphasize the point that a pro bono attorney makes a tremendous difference. Um, you're so, they're so much more likely to be able to win their legal case um, if they have a lawyer standing by them by their side. So um, if you are interested, um, please reach out to us. Um, our information is here, and I believe that you'll get these slides um, following the presentation. So thank you all so much for attending.